Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode. Oh, hello. Jesse, first of all, you're supposed to say hello, hello. Liturgy Guide listeners. Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. Second of all, you're supposed to say hello, award-winning Liturgy Guide listeners. Our listeners won an award? They listen to award-winning <laughs> podcasts. Oh, okay. That type of award. The Liturgy Guys was just chosen by Fisher's Net as best Catholic podcast of 2017. <laughs> and you know what we have to thank for it other than Chris. <laughs> Our listeners who voted. So we asked, please vote, and they did. And we went from sixth place to second place, and then the judges picked us as number one. Anyway, yeah. That is exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And thank you so much for all of you who voted for us. And uh, it just goes to show, Chris, that this is actually a good podcast and a great thing to do. He never believes us. So in your face, Chris. And then also... We are going to be at the Focus Conference in Chicago from January 2nd through January 6th. Right inside the front door, there'll be a big booth with microphones and lights and cameras and cool stuff like that. Yeah, come visit us. Dennis will be there. He will be giving a talk on January 3rd uh, around noon, 1230 to be exact. But uh, if you're going to the conference, come visit us at our booth. We'll, We'll be right in the front of all the booths and come say hi, come meet us, and also... You know, I just want to remind people that they can go to school at the Liturgical Institute, so you can get a Master's of Arts in Liturgy. It's pretty sweet. I would say. You, Yeah, you would say. I would say. I do you say. Would. You do say. I profess that but, as a professor. But uh, our summers here are really fun, so apply to our summer master's program. It's really great. And, uh, oh, what are we talking about today? We are uh, talking about Paul Tillich, a Protestant <laughs> theologian who was nonetheless very influential on Catholic art and why there are ugly things in your churches. So we're going to find out why there are ugly things in my Believe it or not, there's a theology of ugliness. It's not the Catholic theology, but nonetheless, some people argued for that back in the bad old 70s. All right. So without further ado, episode 19 of season two of The Award-Winning Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You guys are talking about this thing called... This thing or this guy? Thing called Tillich? I don't know. Is it a document? Is it a guy? What? It's a person. Okay. I don't know okay. that. All right. Who? When you hear Tillich, what's your what's your question? <laughs> well, apparently it's a person. So that's the first part of my question. Is it a thing? Person, or place, person, thing or place, or idea? Is it smaller than? Is he smaller than a bread box? Uh, unless the bread box is really <laughs> big, probably not. Okay. okay. Well, he could be cremated and still be smaller than a bread oh box. Oh my gosh! All right. Let's Paul Tillich. All right. Who is he? He was one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Okay. He was a Protestant, uh, Lutheran, and was, in fact, an evangelical Lutheran pastor, which means a particular kind of Lutheran, you know, sort of lower liturgy, um, and quite influential. Actually, in, in Germany? Well, he was born in Germany, but okay. then he came to the United States. He taught right. in New York for a long time. Very influential in the American scene for a lot of things. He wrote a systematic uh, theology and was kind of to Protestant theology what, say, Karl Barth was to Scripture. He's also mm, Protestant. That means or nothing what, to me, but keep but going. But Balthazar, you remember <laughs> Oh, Balthazar? yeah. yeah. He idea. was to the Catholic theology of beauty. 
And um, our friend, Bishop Barron, wrote his doctoral dissertation Shout out, on Barron. Tillich sure and Aquinas and tried to relate uh, to them. So Bishop Barron talks about Paul Tillich um, quite a bit. He's born in 1886 in Brandenburg, Germany, and he's really influenced by the Enlightenment and um, Kant. And like a lot of people of his generation, he fought in World War One. And people say a lot about World War One that it was the end of the Renaissance, basically, or is the end of the classical worldview because people were in the trenches and the mustard gas and the machine guns and using of airplanes for war and this destruction of the world that had never really been seen before, even with the many wars that had come up to that time. And um, so th- there was this sense that World War One really traumatized people and it traumatized him. But in his own life, he talked about how he grew up in a Lutheran tradition that didn't really have anything to say about uh, liturgical things for the eye. We had scripture and you had homilies or sermons and music, but nothing for the eye. And he was kind of raised to think like a lot of more, uh, I don't know how you would say it, more radical, maybe Lutheran theology, that there was no place for the visual in worship. Mm partly because of Luther and others who had the suspicion of images becoming idols and all the Catholic uh, notion that images could be magic or they would be seen as substituting for concentration on the true God and so on. But he's in the trenches and he's really upset about the disgusting... Like the literal war trench? Like the literal in- trenches in the ground okay. of World War One, And um, he said that he bought a magazine at the army store and it had a picture of uh, Botticelli painting Madonna with singing angels. And he said when he saw that, suddenly he was taken away and removed from the blood and the mud and the horrors of war and something kind of broke in. One of his big deals about um, theology, one of his big points was that you had to be shaken. So you were... um, accessed by God in a sense, or you were grabbed by God and you were shaken and you had a conversion. So he talked about shaking a lot as this notion that uh, you're not really converted until something kind of smacks you across the face, wakes you, shakes you, and then um, that transforms you. And he talked a lot about God being ultimate. This is one of the Protestant uh, concerns a lot of the time is that we like all these secondary things in Catholicism. We can kind of forget the ultimate things. And so he figures out, well, Art did something to me, and yet I can't believe that art can do something to me. And he spends really the rest of his life trying to figure out how do you bring Protestantism and art uh, together. And so he starts writing essays and books and giving speeches to the uh, Museum of Modern Art and the American Institute of Architects, and he had all these popularizing essays in um, Parade Magazine was one of them. That's the magazine in the Sunday paper, you know, with the, all the stories about oh, the sure. stars. What's a, what's a Sunday paper? It's a new, well, what's a newspaper? Yeah. 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 It's this thing <laughs> that used to get delivered to your door. It had comics in it. Um, and so he's a real popularizer of art and how it should be uh, done. And he said Protestants in particular shouldn't be doing uh, what the Roman Catholic Church was doing with the, what he called the majesty and mystery and hierarchical power. And yet he had to figure out how could Protestants do something that was involving art, but still would keep what he called the Protestant principle in mind, which was that there's an infinite distance between God and man. And you can't um, kind of claim any notion that God's can become close to you because then you can start to thingify God. Remember we talked about thingifying mm-hmm. a long time ago? That we, the German word was gedinkt. If you turn mm-hmm. God into just another thing, then you uh, run the risk of forgetting that you're a creature and God's the creator. It's like when you drop a rock into like a puddle, it goes gedink. 
It's like an onomatopoeia. Yeah, kind of, yeah. except uh, in German, <laughs> it works a little differently. Uh, so the Catholic view, of course, is that, yeah, God is infinitely distant, right? You probably say something about this, right? How would you? It seems like a question about mediation is how do you, what, what's the distance between you and God and how do you come into contact with God? How can that be mediated? And uh, I'm no expert in this, but it seems like this is what the, the, the Catholic view is. Yeah, all, through, through art, through beauty, through words, through music, through ritual, there's a media, mediatorial power uh, but, that connects us with God. But with, uh, um, with the Reformers, that was maybe called into suspect that the, the, there's nothing that needs to mediate. You go to God yourself or maybe something like that. Is that, is that right, Dennis? Yeah, yeah. That one of the key uh, things in... And, you know, there's many branches of Protestantism, and there's a lot of differences of opinion probably in Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity as well. But one of the big sticking points that divides uh, Christi- Christianity this way between Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants, or sacramental churches versus non-sacramental churches, is the nature of creation. What happens to creation at the fall? Do you know the answer, Chris? The world after the yeah. fall is destroyed and utterly terrible. Yeah, well, there's... Um, or something else. Yeah, you know, Well, it's, it's uh, destroyed. Uh, the, the, Catholic, the, the Latin Catholic tradition especially, right, would be that it's, uh, it's fallen uh, and it's wounded, but it's also redeemed, even though that, the, the fruits of that redemption are not yet here. So we're kind of in that, 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 that middle ground. But I think maybe with the, the non-Catholic uh, or churches or evangelical churches that, that batter has fall, fallen and it's uh, is the expression non-capox day. It's not capable of being a conduit of grace or of mediation between you and the divine. And so it, it's... So it's like heaven or nothing and, or Jesus or nothing. Well, sacramental mediation or nothing. Really. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the Christian, the Catholic worldview is at the fall, creation has fallen. So it's out of order. It's sort of bent out of shape, but it's still fundamentally good. So imagine taking a metal sculpture and hitting it with a hammer. It's still kind of a sculpture and you can sort of see what it started with, but you've bent it all out of shape. In some traditions and more the more radical traditions of um, the Protestant churches, it's the goodness is destroyed. And so it's utterly shattered, it's utterly fallen. So if you use material things of the earth to represent heavenly things, then you're using something that's fundamentally untrustworthy, which is matter, to become an image of God who is God, right? And so you'd be led to something by an external beauty that wouldn't have any correspondence with an internal beauty, and that would become an idol. And so he said the Protestant principle emphasizes this infinite distance between God and man. Um, It emphasizes man's finitude, that's our finiteness, subjection to death, and he says, but above all, his estrangement from his true being and his bondage to demonic forces, forces of self-destruction. And here is one of the big phrases, that it is man in anxiety, guilt, and despair who is the object of God's unconditional acceptance, right? Hmm. So this is a pretty deep, pretty deep, but also kind of bleak. In a way, it's right. You know, we, don't, we can't go up to God and say, hey, God, I'm great. Save me now because I tell you to. You have to, in some sense, say, I'm fallen, I'm wounded, I'm broken, I need you. And in a sense, there's anxiety, guilt, and despair in that. What, what but I think say, the difference is, is justification for, uh, I mean, the Catholic mind would be, even though you are broken and fallen and anxious and the rest, God is going to um, restore that. I think this is one, we went to Mass at noon today, and one of the, maybe it's the, uh, the preface, or one of the prayers said that you're going to be restored uh, to your state of original uh, justification and holiness, but even beyond that, versus a non-Catholic view, which you might be describing as salvationist, you're going to remain 
uh, fallen and broken and just kind of covered over and kind of smuggled into heaven. But you're not going to be restored to your uh, original uh, destiny and attain your original calling. You're going to remain fallen. That sounds bad. I would not want that. Well, by itself, it's an interesting theological preposition. But then when you start to play it out, the question is, how do you make yourself someone who is always in anxiety, guilt, and despair so that you're ready to uh, be accepted by God? Or how do you make architecture that represents anxiety, guilt, and despair? How do you make art that represents anxiety, guilt, and despair? No colors, uh, lots of metal and cold. Sort of unadorned. Yeah concrete churches like you know they just tore down this unadorned concrete church for the St. Paul's Newman Center here in Madison which just was uh, consecrated you know the other day and uh, they got rid of the empty gray church which just reminds you of your nothingness right your finitude Mm -hmm. and now they have a church where there's you needed to be reminded of that right and you couldn't use it as a sacramental expression right so the question is why are we talking about Paul Tillich at all well he's the not just the tastemaker but he's also the theology guy for Catholic art and Protestant art, but Christian art generally, at a time when really nobody else was doing it. So people ask, well, why did we build big, ugly concrete churches in the 60s? Well, part of it was that's what the architects were doing. And so the architects found, finally, somebody who said their modernist architecture could actually be theological, where all the church people up till then were pretty much saying, no, that's not what a church is. No, big, empty concrete church. There's no theology behind that. You know, a church has to look like a church. It has to be a sacramental thing. And nobody supports them. And then he comes along and says, hey, guess what? There is a theological reason to build a big, empty church because we're fundamentally bound to anxiety, guilt, and despair. Paul Tillich would say that. Right. Oh, okay. Right. And so because he's so, in, because he's so influential in the American Institute of Architects and journals and magazines, Suddenly, he just becomes the Christian tastemaker of the 60s and uh, 50s and 60s, whether or not his theology is Catholic or not. In fact, he flat out said he could not accept the Catholic view that, uh, I think the quote is, that affirms every person, place, or thing is capable of becoming a sacrament of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. He refused that. He said, I can't buy that. And, um, of course, the Catholics never gave that up. But nonetheless, we built architecture that didn't really, or made art that didn't really match the... um, theology that we or, hold or done liturgies well right exactly and so you know it's it, in a way it's a kind of a bleak existence you know god only loves me if i'm bound up in anxiety guilt and despair <laughs> that's i mean if your kids said father my father will only love me and let, if i walk around in anxiety guilt and despair all the time that's kind of a happy uh, household a, a, well right you want them to be humble right you don't want them just to show up and demand things from you um, but he was very interested in this notion of the ultimate concern. God was the ultimate concern, and all these secondary concerns could be fundamentally uh, untrustworthy. And so you had to be very careful about what you uh, did. So one of the kinds of art that he liked was called Expressionism. And it was one of these things that came out after World War One that you couldn't trust the form. So you have all these pictures coming out of the Victorian era of sort of sweet baby Jesuses and Mary who looks like she's made of porcelain and all these beautiful paintings. And then after World War One, there's like, wow, this doesn't make sense with the world we know. You know, mustard gas and bombs and people killing each other. We can't just live in this la-la land of pretty pictures. We have to show art that shows the reality of the world. So expressionism in the early days was held by a couple of different artists who wanted to break the form to make everything distorted. So Picasso, the early Picasso is one of mm-hmm. these. And you start seeing faces that are not quite right and they're out of whack and you have faces that are green with you know eyes turned sideways and some of the weird looking Picasso stuff. You know, it's not just 
hey, look, this is a new way of painting. There's a theology behind it. And one of Picasso's most famous paintings was called Guernica. And it was all about the destruction of war. So you see um, people all distorted and horses upside down and dying. And this picture of basically anxiety, guilt, and despair. This is what the world's con true condition is actually um, like. And so, of course, the modernist painters were like, hey, thank God we have a theological person who's finally on our side and could finally get rid of all that theology that, uh, I mean, that just gets in the way. Art. All that Catholic theology. Well, right, exactly. And, you know, some of the artists that he loved and that he quoted, one of them was Paul Clay, C-K-L-E-E, -E, who said, uh, we used to represent visible things on earth. Now we reveal the reality of visible things, uh, which is different from the external. So it's the splitting. Remember, modernity doesn't like to hold things together. It's a dualism. It's either reality or it's external. And eventually this became known as abstract expressionism. There's some famous... Um, I guess you could say famous paintings where they paint three big lines across a canvas of slightly different colors, and that was expressing the mood of the artist. Was was Salvador Dali one of the? Was he expressionist or? Well, in a way, yeah, he had this distortion of the reality, you know, like his melting watches and mm -hmm. these weird distortions his of is things. Kind of interesting painting of Mary, actually. Right. Uh, where there's like missing chunks and things floating in the air and stuff like that. I mean, he never got rid of the value of ex external expression. Um, but, you know, these folks were trying to say the external can't be trusted. The internal is all that matters. And so uh, you make these different kinds of art that would uh, relate to this. Now, you know, the question of this for us is what do you do with an art theory and a theological theory that says you're bound to anxiety, guilt, and despair, and that all we know about the world is, you know, horrors of the trenches and piles of corpses. <laughs> it's pretty hard to have a sacramental worldview when this is your view of the world. And so he gives, um, uh, he just becomes the face for this. Actually, now I have to cough, believe it or not. <coughs> oh, did yeah. you, did you, uh, you guys may not have, well, you can't see what just happened, but. <laughs> Chris and I coughed at exactly Chris the was same like, moment. oh, Dennis is coming. I might as well get one exactly off now. What, My goodness. exactly what I thought. He's going to, he got some cover from me uh, in that one. And, you know, when you talk about Protestant view of things, it easily can become, hey, are you anti this? Or are you uh, some kind of anti-ecumenical, whatever? I'm trying my best to say what he said. He called it the negative Protestant character. Uh, and he called that painting Guernica the most Protestant painting ever painted because it showed the world in the need of the Savior in this very um, hmm. kind of obvious way. And it didn't have any, what he called the deceptive uh, character of the surface, uh, which one you know, that keeps you from discovering what's under the surface. Um, so you you know people who have their ideas about what Christ might be like, and they just like the idea of a little happy Jesus, and that's enough. They're not really looking for a savior necessarily. And you, sometimes you get the happy clappy Christian: "Are you saved? I'm saved," mm -hmm. and they don't really want to change their lives that much. Um, so he becomes a tastemaker. So part of the reason to talk about this is if you are in a parish, and you say, especially if it was built in the late '60s or early '70s, why is that ghoulish? Jesus on the wall and why is his face green and why are his fingers distorted and why does it look broken and ugly and unpleasant? It's not just because the artists were trying to do something that hadn't been done before. There's actually a theology of art completely contrary to the Catholic worldview that said art should look broken, uh, bound to anxiety, guilt, and despair. Because the, the way he came together on all this was you can't have art in the radical tradition, Protestant tradition, but somehow art 
saved me from the horror of the trenches. How can I reconcile these things? We can have art as long as it's abstract. It doesn't look like a surface, doesn't look like anything beautiful. And when it does have a shape, it's wrapped up in brokenness, anxiety, guilt, and despair. Man, it's like you got halfway there and everyone's like, mm. oh, this is good enough. Right. And even when you talked about um, stained glass, you know, which would traditionally be not something you know, a Protestant church would have, he said, you can have it as long as they're just abstract squares of different colors that give a mood, but Piet don't, don't have any content. So if you're in a church wow. where you have abstract squares of meaningless, colorless <laughs> stained so glass. How did that get into the Catholic architecture, it's a, though? It's an interesting question. Just like question. snuck in or what? That's what the tastemakers were doing. That's what the artists and architects were doing. See, the uh, artists. But why were we following Protestant models? Well, that's a good question. There, it, but see, it was a, became a cultural model too. Okay, I think. and so we, we, we were we were following all sorts of models. But I guess what I want to know, Dennis. All right, so in summary form, you shouldn't have to listen to this podcast long to. I should probably be able to answer this. What's the Catholic line on liturgical art and architecture? If it's not that. Well, in the sense we know that we're fallen, but we always anticipate, particularly in the liturgical setting, the glorious face of God. So Christ is off in the distance somewhere. We know we're going to see him face to face. We have the foretaste of the heavenly liturgy. The Vatican II does not say we hang around in anxiety, guilt, and despair until we get to our heavenly homeland. It says we participate in that heavenly homeland by way of sacrament, by way of foretaste, until we're fully in access of it, able to access it with the angels and saints and bring Christ brought the song of heaven into earth and then brought that earthly song to the halls of heaven. So we have a really uh, high theology of creation and understand that it can be a bearer of God. And you know why I talk about this all the time. Can you remember the two points in scripture that prove this Could give you the QED smackdown on? Oh man. Uh, does it have anything to do with the temple? Nope. There's two Asians. There's two, oh, oh, incarnation. Incarnation, so matter, right? God, yes. Yeah, so matter, oh, okay. it reveals God. You know, Christ, <laughs> Thanks, <man. laughs> one for incarnation, one for transfiguration. Matter and reveals a, God. And a negative bell for Jesse. So matter, <laughs> matter is capable of that. Well, obviously, because Christ <laughs> took on matter. He wasn't a ghost. Oh, mm -hmm. hey, yeah. You I dare follow. say obviously to me. That's a, that's a Down Abbey reference. Oh, oh sorry, season, season five. You dare say obviously to <laughs> me? You know which season? Because I just watched it. Um, hey, I just want to let you guys. We, we made it ten episodes without talking about Down to That was pretty good. Well, you were the one who talked about yeah, it the last I time. I know. Anyway, matter. God, Christ is made of matter, and He says, "He who has seen me has seen the Father." And then on the transfiguration, the glory of God is revealed too. So hidden in the matter, but then glorified. That very matter is glorified. His body becomes dazzlingly white and his clothes. So this is the usually the Catholic answer to this notion that matter cannot reveal God. Matter so, matters. Well, that's just it. It's, it's really more of a, uh, um, a theology of creation, that, uh, that matter is good. Even if it's fallen, it's been redeemed. Uh, it's capable of re revealing the divine to us. The divine is mediated. If matter is not deceiving you in sort of a platonic way. It's not lying to you. Anything like that. It, it's the means by which, it's, it's the sacramental principle is what it is. It's the, the way that God comes to us and us to God. Right, exactly. According to our nature. We perceive things through the senses, so therefore God comes to us through the ways that we perceive him. And to just think, well, I, I only am acceptable to God if I'm living in anxiety, guilt, and despair, that's just a recipe for sad depression, I think. Now, you mentioned, uh, especially in the liturgical context, but would it be inappropriate to have devotional art that was, that 
you know, would maybe portray, you know, our fallenness or suffering or anxiety or guilt. Yeah, like, pa- like the passion. Right, exactly. And so we have a nice balance. We don't deny the the crucifixion just because we delight in the glory of the resurrection. We have them in their regular place. So the offering of Christ's sacrifice is real, except that it's given to God in the glorified uh, context. Do you ever know the the uh, Matthias Grunwald, Grunwald mm-hmm. crucifixion? It's a famous uh, crucifixion in a museum in Germany. Yeah, I'll show you a picture of it there, Jesse. And uh, Christ is really shown torn up, and his fingers are all gnarled, and he's really beaten up, and the, crucif- the, the crown of thorns is really huge. Yeah, you can't see it too well. Sometimes they just focus in on his toes, and even his toes are bent up. <clears throat> and he's, Paul Tillich said that that was the most Protestant uh, – version of the crucifixion that was a protestant painting suffering anxiety guilt despair christ took that all on us but what he didn't mention was that's actually part of a a layered triptych so it's two little ah, two doors that close and when you open the doors on the inside is christ's resurrection and he's shown in his glorified body so that's a good both glorified and suffering yeah but is the glorified like expressionist (laughs) no it's a body radiant with light it's one of the most colorful I mean, just the, there's yellows and reds, and uh, is, is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, and yeah. the face of should, Jesus is almost uh, intangible, like it's uh, it's merging into the light that radiates out uh, for him. So, why do many of us want to know this? Because we still have a lot of that stuff. You go through a typical catalog, and you'll see a, um, a candlesticks that look like they're broken, like tree bark, or you have a tabernacle that's all brown and not idealized and sometimes we're a little afraid of having that eschatological glory in our stuff because it's not authentic Um, but we are not bound to anxiety guilt and despair only Uh, and when we do feel it that's when you can invite christ in but you can invite christ in in your good days too so we we understand our fallenness and we hope in our resurrection we understand that matter is not fully glorified yet but we also understand that it can become a bearer of god's glory and uh, you hold those things in balance, don't get out of whack, and then you wait for the day that you can enjoy it all fully. The, um, you know, the line from Vatican II that I always like to quote is that um, sacred art should express God's boundless beauty, which I don't think Paul Tillich would ever say is possible. And then it should be worthy, becoming, and beautiful signs and symbols of the heavenly realities. And so those uh, just stir us on to get there, just like mm-hmm. the... Smell of chocolate chip cookies we've talked about before, or oh, yeah. the, the Emerald City at the end of the golden, the yellow brick road. You know where it is, you see its beauty, you're attracted to it, and you say, I want more of that, and to understand it fully. And if all you can do is be surrounded by ugliness, that's not, at least in my view, is not a good motivating factor. What, what would uh, Paul Tuck say about maybe like Caravaggio's uh, crucifixion of St. Peter? Would that be appropriate because it is depressed and you know broken and well it's not depressed like you you very rarely see saint peter you know as a corpse lying in a heap you know Mm -hmm. it's a moment of glorious suffering as opposed to a moment of kind of suffering in anxiety guilt and despair and hopelessness and loneliness so there's one thing about the catholic traditional art and suffering is that there's always a glory to it a glorified quality to it and so it's okay to talk about suffering nothing we wouldn't want to argue that you can't but it's not primarily the human condition by yeah. which God comes and, and saves you. It seems like just throughout this conversation, it kind of it's convenient that um, art and architecture just happen to match 
what what uh, his perception of the world and what beauty should be. Um, and it's just like, oh, well, this exists, so it must be, you know, it's like bringing, it's bringing God to your level and what you understand rather than being brought into beauty and art, which is kind of that Catholic understanding. Right. And if you take this seriously, if you can't trust matter, well, then what, what's the best thing to do? Build non-churches, right? Build mm-hmm. things that don't look like anything. So one of the things that he worked together with architect Philip Johnson was the, the church, and there was no church. It was outside. And there were some shrubs and a few benches, and that was like the perfect church because it escaped from that fallen matter. Ultimately, if you take this out but, to its conclusion, it's kind of ridiculous. creation fallen too. Well, yeah, I know, but you can't have <laughs> nothing, right? You know, the Diocese of Orange bought the Crystal Cathedral not too long ago, and that was built by Protestants who wanted to have a building that wasn't a building, right? It's the minimum amount of steel you need to hold it together and glass, which is almost invisible, and so you can have a building that uses as little matter as possible. It's kind of an anti-sacramental principle. Um, which is why they're having a hard time turning it into a cathedral because there's not enough there to do it. And they, you know, they're doing their best to, to try to beautify it. Mm-hmm. But it's a tough, tough project when something you've designed to not be something has to then do something else. Isn't that limiting God's power and ability to say he cannot enter and encounter us through matter? Isn't that saying, isn't that like limiting his ability as God, the infinite being? Well, in a way, yeah, yeah. But he, he's trying to preserve the absolute dominance of God over us. God as everything, us as creature, God as giver, us as receiver. And if you start to grow into self-satisfaction with earthly things, you start to realize, I don't need God because I have this mm-hmm. beautiful statue, then that could be a problem. But, of course, the answer to that is understand the relationship between matter and spirit and do it right and keep it in proper relationship. The answer is not matter is bad and get rid of all of it. So you see churches, you know, even Chicago's Holy Name Cathedral and when the renovation, they took out all the stained glass windows of figures and they replaced them all with green, orange and white rectangles. I don't know if they were reading Tillich on purpose, but uh, intentionally, but that would have been right up his alley. Neutral, no particular claims, no particular sense of the incarnation, just something vaguely ecclesiastical that makes no particular claim on you. And it still still looks like that. All right. Well, I think it's time. What, what Chris? You give me a look. Are you feeling anxiety, oh. guilt, and despair? Well, I am. Well, this is great. I didn't know anything about Paul Tillich before yeah, this podcast. I didn't even know it's it was great. a person, to be honest. I, I thought it was like a, like a documentary. You just said Tillich. I don't Tillich. know what that is. Yeah, well, like, if you want to uh, read more about this, there it could there, be a Latin word like Sacrosanctum Tillich or Tillichium. Yep, there's a, a book where all his essays are collected. But also, I Jesse, you know me, Dennis. I do. I wrote an article in Communio about this years ago. It's winter 2006. It's called Reflections on Tillich's Protestant Principle in Sacred Art. I think we, I think we probably link to that, and I'll try to get some of these photos in there if I can. I don't know what what we have the ability to do, but. Uh, time to answer a question, Chris. What do you think? Let's do it. I'm too wrapped with despair uh-huh. to do that. All right. Well, Chris can do it. Okay. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, It also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this next question comes from Kunigunda, and Kunigunda says, I've read a lot lately about the importance of silence in the liturgy. Can you explain more about why there are parts of the Mass that need to be silent? Sure. Well, part yes. of this comes yes, from <laughs> our very own The answer Pope is yes. Thank Francis. you very much. It was in the Catholic News Service just, just recently. And they show a picture of Pope Francis with his hand over his mouth. It just happens to be, he's thinking, you know, with his finger on his lips. It's not silence. But he said, silence is important. Remember what I told you last time? We're not going to a show, meaning don't take your selfies at Mass. Oh, I, I heard about that one. Yeah. Uh, silence prepares us and accompanies us. You should us. be lifting up your hearts and not your cell phones. Right, that exactly. That was good. Okay, oh. I'm sorry. That's yeah, pretty, no, that's right. I need so, to be silent and let you talk, Dennis. Yeah. Okay. There should be more silence on yeah. the liturgy, guys. But, you know, silence is a funny thing. We have so little of it because we have TV and Internet and DVDs and YouTube and we're almost never quiet. But I've noticed when you're at a, a mass where there's a period of silence, you suddenly start thinking a bit. It's like, oh, let me think about what I've just heard. And, you know, the liturgical movement in Vatican II wanted people to speak a lot. There's a lot about the people were too silent, the parts that said people, they weren't allowed to sing or say, and so they should be able to speak. And I think it becomes this point now where silence is somehow considered almost pre-Vatican II. You have to fill every minute. So the priest is processing from here to there. You need some kind of vamp music. Oh, this is happening from there to there. You need to have a hymn. If the people are sitting and they're not doing anything, suddenly it's not right. But it, Vatican II specifically says, I think in paragraph 30, that at appropriate times there should be silence. John Paul talked about this. Carl Ratzinger talked about this. Then as Pope Benedict, he talked about it. And now Pope Francis. Pope Francis talks about it um, a lot. Quite a lot. Kind of ironic that he talks about silence a lot. I was, right. I was really just trying to think of a joke about that, but you got mm. it, Dennis. You win. <laughs> I was at a mass once, and the choir was singing a song called "Sacred Silence." That's so funny <laughs> that they were singing, singing, singing like ten verses of the song "Sacred Silence." But like what happens? What happens in silence? You know, they talk about the Holy Spirit whispering to you, or God whispering to you. And you know, if someone were in a room with you speaking very quietly, and you just had the music blaring, you, you wouldn't hear it. So you've just heard the word of God. You've heard some meditations, you know, exhortations given by the priest and then you get some time to really think about this and it's not just a talk 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 but it's also receive 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 and so during the periods of silence you're supposed to receive you're supposed to think you're supposed to give your heart you're supposed to think about giving yourself as a sacrifice letting god come into you those are the kinds of things that happen in this internal so silence isn't doing nothing silence is letting this all this internal preparation happen and then after the period of silence you can stand up and say may the lord accept the sacrifice at your hands or whatever you're asked to say so that you say it with conviction and not just out of a rote memorization of the thing that comes next pregnant silence not a silence that's just devoid of sound intentional silence mm -hmm. yeah active silence so nice just do not be afraid of silence at the right times at the appropriate times they always say that because the silence that happened at the old low mass which was pretty much the whole thing right nobody said anything and they were silent speak when you're supposed to speak contemplate where you're supposed to contemplate and then be ready to receive ready to give yourself ready to hear and silence is that time of preparation Excellent. Kunigunda, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. 
Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.